Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, October 26th. In today's news, a new wave of COVID cases is straining resources nationwide. Eleven are arrested after fights erupt between a pro-Trump caravan and protesters in Manhattan. And a Virginia state senator found headstones on his property. It brought to light a historic injustice in D.C. But first the big idea. The presidential campaign was roiled anew this weekend by a fresh outbreak of the coronavirus at the White House that infected at least five top aides and advisors to Vice President Pence, a spread that President Trump's chief of staff acknowledged on Sunday that he had tried to cover up and avoid disclosing to the American people before the election. The outbreak around Pence, who chairs the White House Coronavirus Task Force, undermines the argument Trump is making to voters that the country is, quote, rounding the turn, as the president put it once again at a rally last night in New Hampshire. Further complicating Trump's campaign trail pitch was an extraordinary admission Sunday from White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that the administration has effectively given up on trying to slow the spread of the virus. Meadows said on CNN, quote, we're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigations. Joe Biden, who regularly wears a mask on the trail and strictly adheres to social distancing guidelines, sought to capitalize on that remark. He said it wasn't a slip by Meadows, but nothing less than waving the white flag of defeat. Biden said Trump has always hoped that by ignoring the virus, it would simply go away. It hasn't, Biden noted, and it won't. Some in the vice president's office suggested that White House doctors should release a statement saying that Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff who tested positive, had the contagion, but that Pence was okay and safe to travel. But that idea was scuttled by Meadows, and reportedly the president was involved in that decision. The outbreak in Pence's orbit comes about three weeks after Trump was hospitalized with the virus and a number of his own advisors tested positive. The new list of those infected includes Short, who is Pence's closest advisor, Pence's top outside political advisor, Marty Opst, his personal aide, Zach Bauer, known as his body man, who accompanies him all day, every day, and two other staff members. Pence has been in close contact with Short and some of the others in recent days, but his spokesman, Devin O'Malley, says the vice president and second lady Karen Pence tested negative for the virus on Saturday and then again on Sunday. Some White House aides said they did not want to draw more attention to the outbreak because it would highlight the pandemic in the final week of a campaign in which voters disapprove of the president's handling of the pandemic. The White House knows that it raises new questions about the administration's mishandling of the entire crisis. But Pence himself was out on the trail Sunday. He continued with his heavy schedule. He flew to North Carolina for an evening rally in Kinston. Phil Rucker, Josh Dossie, and Amy Wang on our White House team report that Pence told aides after his senior officials tested positive, that he was determined to keep up public appearances through this week despite his potential exposure and irrespective of federal guidelines. Some aides said they would have preferred tele-rallies because if the vice president gets infected while out on the road in the final days of the campaign, it's likely to become a bigger story for several days. But on Monday, Pence is determined to visit the Capitol to preside over the Senate vote to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer decried Pence's plans to preside over the vote, which is not necessary or required. She'll get confirmed either way. Schumer said on the floor, quote, 
God help us. The latest outbreak underscores the absence of basic public health safety protocols at the White House, even after Trump got it. Not only that, but we're still not seeing public health recommendations followed at Trump events or Pence events. Their aides routinely flout CDC recommendations, as well as state and local health guidelines. They don't wear masks with any regularity, nor do they practice social distancing. Aboard Air Force Two, where Pence and his team have spent considerable time in recent weeks jetting around the country, officials often don't wear masks as they sit with Pence. Meadows, in short, Pence's chief who has COVID, have been among the more strident skeptics of imposing any coronavirus restrictions inside the administration. Both have played down the threat of the virus and the push for precautions in the White House. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start this last full week before the election. Number one, with coronavirus hospitalizations surging across much of the United States and daily cases hitting all-time highs, more than 80,000 new cases were reported on Friday and Saturday. The pandemic is putting new strains on local health systems, prompting plans for makeshift medical centers, and sparking new hard conversations about rationing care. In Texas, authorities are scrambling to shore up resources in El Paso, where intensive care units have passed full capacity since Saturday and where COVID hospitalizations have quadrupled to almost 800 in less than three weeks. The governor there, Greg Abbott, pleaded with federal authorities on Sunday to allow him to send people who don't have COVID to be treated at nearby army bases so that they can have room for people who do. In Utah, the State Hospital Association officially warned yesterday that if current trends hold, they will soon have to ask the governor to invoke crisis standards of care. That's a triage system that would favor younger patients who could survive over older patients who would be allowed to die. Greg Bell, director of the Utah Hospital Association, says this is an extreme situation because it means that all of their contingency planning has been exhausted. The past week has brought the highest number of new cases since the pandemic started from coast to coast. Hannah Knowles and Jacqueline Dupree report that several dozen states have seen record seven-day averages of more than 100 new cases per 100,000 people. For example, there are more than 700 new cases per 100,000 people in North Dakota. Population-wise, that would be the equivalent of Florida reporting more than 20,000 new cases a day. Some officials' attempts to tamp down cases with stricter rules have run into opposition. In Wisconsin, the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, is asking his citizens to rise above an appeals court temporarily blocking limits that he had imposed on indoor gatherings. It's the latest challenge to coronavirus restrictions in a state posting, posting record hospitalizations for COVID. In so many ways, Wisconsin is a microcosm of the forces roiling America, with one of the nation's fastest growing infection rates, a government racked by toxic partisan division, a state Supreme Court dominated by conservatives who reliably side with Republicans in the legislature who oppose any restrictions at all, and a major city, Kenosha, that has been taken over by racial justice demonstrations after an officer-involved shooting. It's only fitting that Wisconsin may be the state that decides our nation's destiny next week. And sadly, just when you think it can't get worse, it always, always, always can. Tropical Storm Zeta will threaten the Gulf Coast and could become a hurricane later this week, as 2020 ties the record for the most named storms. Zeta is the record-tying 27th named storm so far this year, matching 2005 for the most names in a single year. That was when we got Katrina. 
Number two, 11 people were arrested last night in Manhattan after fights broke out between a caravan of Trump supporters and demonstrators who were protesting the president. The brawls broke out when a group calling itself Jews for Trump crossed paths with an anti-Trump crowd. In Florida, a man was arrested on Sunday for allegedly stealing a bulldozer to dig up Biden-Harris signs. James Blight, 26, even allegedly ran down one of his city's speed signs. He's been charged with grand theft auto and trespassing. And dozens of ballots were destroyed last night in a suspected arson of a Boston drop box. By the time firefighters doused the fire by filling the inside of the box with water, dozens of ballots inside had been destroyed. The FBI is searching for a suspect. These three examples, and there are a bunch more, show how for many Americans the future looks bleak, particularly dark, if the other side wins. In every generation, politicians present certain elections as the most important of our lifetimes. But the 2020 vote is taking place with our country in a historically dark mood, low on hope, running on spiritual empty, convinced that the wrong outcome will bring disaster. Mark Fisher reports that the rejection of the other side is so thoroughgoing that 31 percent of Biden supporters in Virginia say they would not accept a Trump victory as legitimate. And 26 percent of Trump supporters are similarly unwilling to accept a Biden victory as legitimate, according to a new Washington Post Shar School poll. That's a recipe for disaster. Number three. Richard and Lisa Stewart were walking beside the Potomac River a few years back when they noticed an odd rock in the riprap on the water's edge. It was a headstone. Once they started looking, they saw another, and then another. With horror, Stewart discovered that a two-mile stretch of erosion control along the riverfront farm he had just purchased was full of grave markers. A Republican state senator, Stewart enlisted Virginia historians to figure out where they came from. The trail led upriver to the nation's capital, and illuminated a dark truth about how Washington became the city it is today. The headstones had come from Columbian Harmony Cemetery, a historic African-American burial ground that was dug up and relocated in 1960 to make way for commercial development. Now, what was once the cemetery is the site of the Rhode Island Avenue Brentwood Metro Station and surrounding shops and condos. Columbian Harmony, had been the final resting place for a century's worth of D.C.'s most illustrious black citizens. Among them, Elizabeth Keckley, a confidant of Mary Todd Lincoln, Philip Reed, who helped create the Statue of Freedom atop the U.S. Capitol Dome, and scores of black Civil War veterans from the Union Army. But it wasn't just famous names. Some 37,000 people were laid to rest at that cemetery between 1859 and 1960, Columbian Harmony is among at least five major black cemeteries in D.C. that were obliterated in the past century for the sake of development for projects championed by white folks. Even in the annals of such destruction, it's unusual to find a trove of so many headstones discarded like scrap. For descendants, the discovery solves a mystery, but it also reveals an indignity that some had never known existed. It is so painfully dehumanizing. In this case, at least, there is an effort to atone. Greg Schneider, our man in Richmond, reports that Virginia's governor, Ralph Northam, the Democrat who got into trouble last year for that blackface yearbook picture, has stepped in to help Stewart. They've enlisted a nonprofit group to remove as many headstones as possible from the river through a tentative deal with Maryland's Republican Governor Larry Hogan. There are plans to send many of the headstones to a relocated cemetery in Landover, Maryland, and to create memorials in both states. 
And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, October 26th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.